There's an old ditty that goes like this, to live with saints above, that will be glory. To live with saints below, well, that's another story. <laughs> Frankly, the latter is true with anyone, whether it is a believer or non-believer, friend, spouse, co-worker. Charlie Brown said it so well, if it weren't for people, life would be great. Uh, today we're going to talk about resolving conflict. This is uh, our last message in our series on marriage. Uh, the topic is so crucial if we're to maintain vital, growing, biblical relationships. And so I want to begin by exploring a model for conflict resolution, and then we'll examine two aspects of that model that I believe are critical and where we all really need a biblical framework for dealing with these things, anger and forgiveness. And before we look at the model, lay, let me just lay out on the table a couple basics that I think are essential for us. Number one, conflict is normal. That is, it is inevitable. One of the consequences of the event in Genesis 3 of Adam and Eve's disobedience is that every person comes into this world with a natural bent towards sin, self-centeredness, uh, selfishness. So it really shouldn't surprise us that one of the byproducts of this happening and truth for us is that there's conflict in relationships. One of the great preachers of the last century was Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he told how his children used to amuse themselves with their push-button radio. Some of you are old enough to remember push-button radios. And you listen to one program, and then in the middle of a sentence, you push the button, you know, one of the buttons, and you join another program. Uh, for example, they might be listening to a political speech and hear the words, I promise, and the button is pushed and the sentence continues, strike three, you're out. <laughs> Barnhouse told of one incident, and this is true, by the way, that the children were listening to the broadcast of the marriage of Queen Elizabeth of England to Philip. And the minister said, do you, Philip, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? The button was pushed, the radio continued with the account of a prize fight, shake hands, go to your corners, and come out fighting. <laughs> there may be more truth to that than we want to admit. Um, the, the second basic is one that we often talk about, and that is that God desires to and will use everything, even our conflict, for our personal and spiritual growth. We often and glibly, uh, you know, quote from Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love him, to those who are the called according to the purpose, and then we live as though that weren't true. Conflict is inevitable, and God can use it for our good, but how? The model that I'd like to have you consider today comes from the book Choosing to Love Again by Dr. Gary Rosberg. Here it is, it begins with an offense. Someone does something, they say something, that there is a trigger point that initiates conflict. It might be intentional, it might be unintentional. It might be real, it might be imagined. It might be known to both parties or only the one that's offended. A few weeks ago, Nancy and I went down to Fredericksburg to spend some time with our son and his wife and our grandson. Uh, every year the city holds a fishing contest out at the reservoir outside of town. And Emmett had his fishing pole, 
And at the end of the, of the pole there uh, was, a, was a bobber. And, uh, and then comes the weight and then the hook. And so he cast the line out into the water and he waited. And after a short time, the bobber began to dance. But here's the thing, was the action at the point of the bobber? No, it was below the surface at the level of the hook. I think so often the real cause of offense and, and of conflict is below the surface. It's not at the bobber level. Now, I know we can make a long list of the sources of relational conflict. You know, most of them below the surface. Uh, we often miss them as we focus on the bobber, but there are these things that are causing the conflict underneath. Our list would probably include things like jealousy, unfulfilled expectations, selfishness, unclear communication, impatience, uh, hypersensitivity, criticism, misunderstandings. I'm sure you could add a lot more to the list. Now, there are three primary ways that we respond to conflict. And my guess is that you basically operate in one of these three patterns quite consistently. Dump, stuff, or confront. Now, I have some visuals this morning to help you remember as you leave this morning. So the first thing is to dump. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Another descriptive word is explode, but this is what happens in conflict, is that we dump. Um, there's conflict, and regardless of the real emotion that's involved, you blow up. You fly off the handle. In our culture, it's safer to express anger than it is hurt, isn't it? And we often do that. It's even more culturally acceptable. And so we go full, full bore in our event. You know, how could you do that? How could you say that? You make me so angry. Remember that so often our reaction is at the bobber level. Well, the real action is happening below the surface. Now, as was true with communication, the Proverbs has a lot to say about conflict. Look at the description from Proverbs about this person. Proverbs 19, 19, a person of great anger shall bear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. Proverbs 29, 22, an angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Are you this kind of person? Is this how you respond to an offense? What are you like to live with? to work with. Have you ever put yourself in the shoes of your family members or your co-workers or a friend? Now here's what often happens with this kind of a person. You know, you dump and then you feel better, right? You got it off your chest. And then you tend to do one of two things. You either forget it or you jump right to forgive. But the relational loop stays open. There's no working through the offense that caused the hurt and the anger. And often when you've dumped, you feel better. And you conclude mistakenly that all is well. But you see, the problem is you don't see the collateral damage. That it's been like a, a neutron bomb. You know, all the buildings are still standing, but everybody else is dead. 
That, that's the danger of being a, a dumper. The second option, and that's being a stuffer. Well, you get my point. How many of you out there join me? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you join me as a stuffer? You see, we bury it, we hide it, we repress it. And for stuffers, it might take one of several forms. Some rationalize, well, they didn't mean it. You know, they, they probably didn't know that it would hurt. They're just having a bad day. Uh, others spiritualize it. Well, love means that I just take it with a smile. God wants to teach me something. He'll honor my silence. Others trivialize it. Uh, well, it wasn't such a big thing. And still others minimize. Well, it really didn't hurt that much. Still others compromise. It's okay. They can have their way again. And some internalize it. I must have done something wrong. It must be my fault. And instead of fight, stuffers flee. Rather than argue, they acquiesce. Instead of engage, they withdraw. And what is tragic and deceptive for we that are stuffers is that we believe something has actually been resolved. Instead, the relational loop is still open. There's no resolution. And if we're not careful, what happens is that bitterness sets in and we find ourselves recalling to mind that offense over and over again, days, weeks, even months later. You know, so we're feeling the anger in our heart, but we cover it up. Look at this description in Proverbs 26. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Now, here's a real mistake often committed by stuffers. The offense occurs, we're hurt, we suppress our emotional response, and in thinking we're doing the Christian thing, we run right to forgiveness. But it denies the existence and the reality of the fence. And the relational loop is really not closed. So dump stuff. Just think for a moment of what a, a different scenario in a relationship, especially in marriage. What happens if you've got one dumper and one stuffer? What happens if you have two dumpers? Oh, it sparks all the time. Or if you have two stuffers, right? You stuff it long enough, what's the old teapot? It'll blow. There's a third option, and that, if you look on the diagram, is loving confrontation. Now, when, when most people hear about confrontation, what do they think about? MC Hammer. Right? You know, architect that did all the work of my parents' home, he'd always say, don't force it, just use a bigger hammer. Now, some of us think that this is what we're talking about. It's not. We're talking about loving confrontation here. It's where I say I am willing to risk talking to you about what I feel and how I feel. Dr. Fowler says expressing hurt demands vulnerability. Think for a moment what you risk when you are willing to do that, to lovingly confront. Uh, there are a lot of things we risk. Fear, fear of exposure. Fear of rejection, you know, that our relationship might change. It may never be the same again. Even a fear that maybe we won't be able to resolve the conflict. There's the risk of guilt. 
you know, this happens to us all the time because to confront someone else's offense, don't we often begin to be mindful of our own failings? And now we're driven by guilt or embarrassment. You know, we fear how that other person is going to handle this conversation. Uncertainty. It could go either way. We just don't know. And we could even lose a friendship. Now, once I choose to lovingly confront, then there are a number of elements that will contribute to effective resolution. Chief among them, and you'll see it on the chart, is heart preparation. It's where I commit to seeing this through all the way, even if it's personally difficult for me and painful. So acknowledge to yourself honestly the hurt. Don't deny the offense, but you need to find courage and strength in God's power by His Spirit to be able to follow through. You also have to guard against vain imaginations because our, our mind can just blow a small thing out of proportion. It goes without saying we need to pray. We should accept up front that it's very possible that some conflict may not be resolvable in the present time. But that's not a valid reason not to express your feelings. Now, some of you love lists. Others detest lists. Um, but I'm going to give you a list nonetheless. Here's some suggestions for loving confrontation. In fact, uh, they'll be on a handout as you leave this morning on the table by the doors, and you can pick one up. But I hope this list will help address one of the questions that came in last week during our, our dialogue time that I punted to this week because it really is fitting here. Uh, that question was this. Our communication usually leads to a misunderstanding or a fight. What can we do? Well, here's some things you can do. Number one, seek clarification. Uh, see if it's just a miscommunication or a misunderstanding. A consultant friend uh, says most of us fear confrontation. If we, took a, if we took a vote, we'd probably have most of us that would agree that we don't like confrontation. But he said this, clarify, don't confront. In other words, this is what I think I heard, clarify. Uh, second, honestly describe how you feel and what you feel. If this is going to succeed, we've got to be honest. Here's a big one. Use I words rather than you words. In other words, not you made me so angry when you said that, but rather I want to tell you why I feel angry. You see, one is very offensive. It charges at the other person. The other sort of brings it back and says, let me, let me tell you what I'm feeling and see if I'm seeing this right. And then we've got to determine the facts. You know, maybe you misunderstood. Maybe you drew wrong conclusions. Again, we're not talking about don't deny the hurt, but you're going to have to determine reality here. Talk back to him. This is what I heard. Am I correct? I, ho I hope sometimes you do that in our dialogue time because I realize that we all hear things differently, and I may say something that you just think, man, that is so far off base. Use the dialogue time to clarify and determine that. Um, speak to be understood, listen to understand. That's why we talked about listening last week when we talked about communication. Seek to identify the real cause of your hurt. Look below the surface. See, I think, and this is, I, I don't know, maybe not, I'm going to make a statement, it's a general statement, but I think, I think more men respond to hurt in anger, not really out of hurt. You look at the primary uh, ways that we can experience an emotion, hurt, scared, um, you know, those kinds of things. But it, it seems like it comes out anger more than anything, particularly for a lot of us men. So we need to deal with that. Um, choose the best time and setting for confrontation. 
I suggest the appropriate time may not be at the beginning of the NCAA championship basketball game. It may not be on the way to the Super Bowl party. It may not be as you're ready to turn the light off to go to sleep at night. So pick a good time when it's appropriate to sit down and talk about these things. Here's a big one. Make your goal resolution not winning. You see, you can win and still lose. You can lose and still win. And then lastly, avoid all the, the all-inclusive words, always and never. You always, you always say that. You are always late. You never do that. No, don't use those words, okay? Let me talk a little bit about anger, because I, I think that comes so much into this. Anger is such a powerful emotion. Every one of us has experienced it. Uh, some of you, may, maybe this morning, came in angry when you think of someone or something or a circumstance in your life. If I just reminded you of it, I apologize. But the emotion that you feel is anger. Anger, as an emotion, occurs frequently in Scripture. Uh, it's often used in conjunction with or equivalent to wrath. Um, you might be surprised to learn that the person who is described in the Bible as angry most is God. Over 135 times in Scripture, there's a reference to God's anger, dozens of references to his wrath. Here's a couple of examples from Numbers 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We tend to have a difficult time thinking of God as angry and God as wrathful. I think for two reasons. First, we see it through the prism of our own expression of it, which is often self-centered and, 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 and is, is, is you know, selfishness that comes in there. The, the second thing, I think, is we have a one-sided view of God which is a sentimental view of God as love, that this is the only attribute that he possesses. It's the only emotion that he experiences. But we fail to see his justice and his holiness and his righteousness. Mm -hmm. Would you turn in your Bibles, if you've got it, or want to grab a seatback Bible in front of you, to Mark chapter 3, page 1066 in the seatback Bible. Mark chapter 3, we're early in Jesus' ministry. And I want you to see this particular incident, Mark chapter 3, and I'm going to read starting at verse 1. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Remember that the Pharisees, that constituted work, which was not allowed, to see whether he'd heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with what? Anger, grieved at the hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. God has anger. Jesus has anger. But his anger without it ever being misplaced, uncontrolled, unfocused, or unrestrained. 
You see, the task of the Christian is not to avoid all anger, but it is to have an appropriate anger in a godly way. Now, will you say, where in the world do you get that? Well, let's go. Paul gives us a biblical framework for handling anger. We're going to go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, if you're still in the Seatback Bible, 1244. Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to suggest three things to you about dealing with anger. The first thing is to express appropriately. Look at chapter 4, the first part of verse 26. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Wow. Be angry and do not sin. Many Christians have been taught that all anger is wrong. It's bad. It's sinful. And yet Paul seems to make a distinction here between anger and the expression of it. Anger must be appropriately channeled so that we do not sin ourselves. The word that Paul uses here in what we just read, orge, is the same that's used in Mark chapter 3 to describe the emotional expression of Jesus toward the Pharisees who are perverting the meaning of the law. There is an anger that is righteous anger, as we see in Jesus himself. But listen, his anger never led to sin. His emotions were always directed toward the right object for the right reason, and they were always kept, it was always kept under perfect control. I suppose that's the reason why most of our anger becomes sin or leads to sin. It's because it's directed at the wrong target for the wrong reason, and it's seldom kept under control. I think so much of our anger is motivated at its deepest level by this self-centeredness, the selfishness. I'm defending myself. I'm defending my rights. So we sometimes we have a right response about something expressed in anger, but then self gets in the way. My feelings, my pride, my rights, my sense of justice, and then we sin in further expression of that anger. Can we possibly justify the actions of a person righteously angry about abortion who shoots the abortionist? You can't defend that scripturally. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So anger, express appropriately, and then resolve quickly. Look at the end of verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is a warning. This is a, this is a flashing red light. You know, what's interesting is that Paul uses a different word for anger in that phrase than he did earlier. This phrase, the word anger, literally means provocation. It's anger that's mixed in with irritation and exasperation and bitterness. It's, a, it's this personal resentment that a righteous anger can become if we brood over it and if we, if we harbor it in our heart. And it comes out as resentment and malice. So be angry, but don't let it hang around lest you become ensnared by it, lest it escalate into bitterness and resentment. Now, another question that came in last week, but again, I, I put it off to this week, was this. How literally should we take the verse that says, don't let the sun go down on your anger? I would suggest you don't take it too literally. 
For, for one thing, remember that Paul's using a different word in that phrase than he did earlier about our anger. Uh, but I, I think the point of what he's saying here is watch out for delaying dealing with your anger if it's leading to resentment and to bitterness. And so in a figurative meaning, don't let this anger fester until it begins to eat your lunch and you become infected by it. But you know what? Sometimes it's better to get a good night's sleep. Even if you're sleeping next to that person that Ralph Cramden comes to mind, the honeymooners, um, that you may want to sleep on that, you know, a disagreement, a confrontation, a hurt, before working to close the loop. A good night's sleep may be the best thing you need. Now, be careful you don't use that simply to avoid having to deal with this. But that's why we have our minds, discretion, wisdom, discernment. Express appropriately, resolve quickly, finally, safeguard cautiously. Look at verse 27. Paul says, give no opportunity to the devil. Somehow, in some way, anger is a potential foothold for the devil. If we go back to the beginning of recorded time, we see an example in the lives of the first kids. Remember, God accepted the sacrifice of Abel, but that of Cain, he did not. And then we read this in Genesis chapter 4. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell, and the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's, it's a word picture of a lion that's crouched, just waiting to pounce on his prey. He said, it's desires for you, but you must rule over it. Cain would not or could not. And so he rose up and he killed his brother. Well, what do you do if you work with or if you live with an angry person? Well, somehow you've got to seek to honestly share your observations, your feelings. Here's a question you might want to use. May I have permission to share with you what I observe? May, may I tell you what I'm feeling right now? What if you are an angry person? Well, you need to get in touch with your anger. What are you really feeling? Is it anger or is it fear? Is it some hurt? Is it another emotion in there? Remember, anger just might be the bobber. Well, the action is happening down here at the level of the hook. Listen to the Holy Spirit. When he brings conviction, repent. Don't rationalize it. Um, get help if you need help with anger. I've often said one of my great disappointments as a father was disciplining my boys in anger. Uh, you know how many times I had to ask for forgiveness. You may need to do that in a relationship that you have. Listen, children do not know how to handle parental anger. It's one of the things that I learned uh, along the way that helped a lot later on. Uh, three books that I have to recommend to you if you're a parent with children at home. They were written by a noted child psychologist, Dr. Ross Campbell, who we actually brought here a number of years ago to talk about parenting, how to really love your child, how to really love your angry child. He wrote it because he was making observations of our culture and How to Really Love Your Teenager. Three great books. Now, if you look back at the model for resolving conflict, you see here forgiveness. Um, Paul admonishes us in Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. My question to you is this, is there someone from whom you need forgiveness? Is there someone to whom you need to grant forgiveness? 
Someone who maybe who has offended you, someone who has hurt you. I, I, in my reading, often come across quotes, and I'll always keep them. Here's a number of descriptions of forgiveness. A Dr. Dan Allender, forgiving love is the inconceivable, unexplainable pursuit of the offender by the offended for the sake of restored relationship with God, self, and others. Psychologist Archibald Hart writes, forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. Dwight Carlson, in one of his books, writes, forgiveness means that we actively choose to give up our grudge despite the severity of the injustice done to us. Now, watch out for some of the myths about uh, forgiveness that's out there, even in the Christian world. Uh, forgive and forget. Sounds great, doesn't it? We don't forget. Um, or forgive but keep score, you know, right? Behind the back, one more, one more. Uh, forgive when you feel up to it, when you're ready for it. Or forgive and tolerate. Remember, forgiveness is basically choosing to release a debt. In doing so, you decide to not let that offense either define or determine the relationship you have with them. And then one last thing here to mention, to close the loop in terms of relationship, restoration, reconciliation. Ellender, in his book, Bold Love, writes, to forgive another means to cancel the debt of what is owed in order to provide a door of opportunity for repentance and restoration of the broken relationship. The driving force behind forgiveness a clear goal of forgiving the offender is the hope of reconciliation. For reconciliation to happen, that requires repentance and the acceptance on the part of both parties of reconciliation. And then comes the issue of trust. Listen, that may take time. That may take time. While still demonstrating unconditional love and complete forgiveness, trust must be earned. Well, I know it's a difficult subject for many, but if you know the forgiveness of Christ, if you know the reconciliation of God, there's no way that you can refuse to do likewise. Now, there's no pastor, there's no therapist uh, who can empower you to love and forgiveness and reconcile. That's only possible through the power of God's Spirit who lives in those that have trusted in Him. Well, as we wrap up the series, I've got another challenge for those of you who are married Actually, it's not new. It goes back to the first week. Have a date night sometime. Talk about these subjects uh, uh, that we've been dealing with in marriage. Take an inventory of your marital uh, relationship. Use the 20 questions. I can't believe it. We ran out last week. There are more on the same table with the suggestions on confronting. So you can pick one of those up. I was tempted to ask who's done it, but I shall not. They say, never ask a question you don't know the answer to or want to know the answer. But I encourage you, go through those questions. Um, resolve that both of you are going to work at strengthening your relationship in, in marriage. As I said from the beginning, our greatest hope and desire is that Knollwood is to have growing, vital marriages within our church family. They're not perfect. They never will be. Mine isn't. Yours isn't. It won't be. But you can be going a direction of toward improving. I know that there are many of you that have participated. How many of you have been coming on a Sunday night? How many? Okay, a bunch of you have been coming Sunday night. I know just, just a 
60 people or so or more have been involved on that. Again, love and marriage, they've really enjoyed that. Next March and May, Family Life Today will be hosting their Weekend to Remember conferences in Reston, March and May. You can just Google that and see. I can't recommend more highly that you go and participate in one of those marriages. If you happen to have a marriage that's in very serious thing, there may be another conference. Talk to me, talk to Chris. We can put you in touch with that. Um, just great things, great resources that are out there to help us deal with that. Well, you know what? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that your word uh, has spoken clearly on the kind of relationship we're going to supposed to have, even in marriage and with friends. And uh, would you empower us to seek after those relationships, part of which is communication, another part is dealing with conflict. And uh, might we have the courage to take that first step to, to deal with conflict in a friendship, in a marriage relationship, whatever it might be. And would you be at work in us first so that you might also then work in the relationship? And so we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.